<coughs> excuse me. Last week we considered together Romans chapter 12, verse 1, which says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So we had this admonition that we were encouraged to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, that is, to dedicate them fully and wholly to the Lord and his purposes. So this morning, we want to consider the question, how is that done? What does that look like to live a life of a living sacrifice? And what will it result in? This morning's text is actually chapter 12, verse 2. And we'll be spending our entire time in this one verse this morning. As we look at this portion of scripture, the emphasis is on a tremendous transformation that is to take place in the life of a believer. And as we think about this transformation, we have first a negative statement. That is what we are not to do. What are we not to do as believers? Answer, we are not to be molded by the thoughts, attitudes, and actions that are typical of the fallen world in which we live. If you look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we're considering the statement, do not be conformed to this world. Do not be conformed to this world. As you think about the statement, the first thing I'd point out to you is that there is this demonstrative word, this. It doesn't say the world, it says this world. Do not be conformed to this world. Secondly, I'd point out to you that the word world here is not the typical word that we think of. Uh, uh, the typical word is cosmos, thinking of this creation, this, this world, this earth. But the word that is used here is a word that is most often translated age. Age, the period of time in which we live. The world in which we live is a fallen world. We live in a world that has been affected by Adam and Eve's sin and the sinful nature that has been passed on to each and every one of us. In the book of Galatians, chapter 1, verse 3, it reads, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from this present evil age. To deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. That is what's in view here, being delivered from this present evil age. And that deliverance is to be had by not allowing ourselves to be molded or shaped by the fallen world in which we live. The word uh, in our text, which is the word to be conformed, is a word that means to be shaped, to be formed into, to be molded. That is, we are not to be forced 
into looking and acting like the fallen people that we are. The main pressure, if you will, is in this view, the thinking that goes on in our minds, which results in the attitudes, the choices, the values, the desires, the goals of those round about us. We have heard the phrase to think outside the box. Well, we're to be thinking way outside of the box. We are not to go along with the flow. We are not to fit in. We are to be a sore thumb. We are to stick out in the difference in the way in which we think from those that are around about us. So positively stated, what are we to do? I'm gonna ask the fellows if you put down the, the screen, please. What are we to do? It tells us in verse two that we'll be transformed by the renewal of our minds. To be transformed by the renewal of our mind. The idea here is that we're to go through a radical change. A change that is a complete transformation. The Greek word that is found in this verse is the word metamorphoso, from which we get the word metamorphosis. A metamorphosis is a biological process by which an animal physically develops after birth or hatching, involving a conspicuous and relatively abrupt change in the animal's body's sinful structure, excuse me, uh, abrupt change in the animal's body structure through cell growth and determination. When you think of a metamorphosis, uh, we ought to think of a caterpillar becoming a butterfly. That complete transformation, that complete change. So if you would run this video. A metamorphosis that is an incredible change transformation that's to take place and in our text that's what it's describing of us 
this transformation that takes place to be a different creature from what we once were. The New Testament emphasizes the change that's to take place in the life of a believer. A change in which we become an entirely new person. So the scriptures use such terminology as to be born again, as though we were born a second time, uh, going through a complete transformation. It uses the terminology of a new creation, as though we are made brand new. In the New Testament, it's often depicted by a change in name, so that a Simon becomes a Peter, a Saul becomes a Paul. And in our culture, sometimes people have nicknames of who and what they were before they are saved that are totally inappropriate for who and what they are now that they are saved. But the idea is this complete change that's to take place in our lives as believers. So how is that change to take place? The answer is through the restoration of our minds. Notice verse two. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. By the renewal of your mind. The phrase renewal of the mind is to restore to a condition of being as good as new. This renewed is a word to be restored. Many of you know what it is for an automobile to be restored. A car that is old, body is rusted, seats are torn, dash is cracked, maybe the windows are not even in the automobile anymore, and it goes through a complete restoration. New paint, new engine work, new upholstery, new dashboards, new glass. And when it's done, when it's completely restored, there is no rust, there is no sign of age, and it looks as good as new. And in fact, in many restorations, it's better than new. For many people use better paint on a restored vehicle than what came from the factory. Many times the gaps in the uh, fenders to the doors are narrower. The tolerances are less than what they came from the factory. It's actually better than new. In this passage, we are to have a restored mind. Better than new. Better even than before the fall. A mind that is rid of that fallen nature and now is not just a mind of innocence but a mind of true righteousness. True righteousness. True holiness. That our minds function in an entirely different way. So why do our minds need to be restored? Answer, because they've been corrupted by the fall. Going all the way back to Romans chapter 1, verse 28, it says, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind 
to do what ought not to be done. The word debased means to be worthless, futile, vain, empty. It's a mind that doesn't work right. It's a mind that doesn't function the way that God originally intended it to function, resulting in doing what ought not to be done, resulting in sinful acts, sinful decisions, sinful conduct, as a result of wrong thinking. Like rust that destroys a car, sin is destructive to our lives. Sin corrupts how we think and our outwork outlook upon life. The need for a renewed or restored mind is described in the book of Ephesians. If you would turn with me there, please. Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. I'll begin reading at verse 17. Now, I'm reading it, Ephesians 4, verse 17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk, that is to live, conduct yourself, as the Gentiles do, that is unbelievers do, in the futility of their minds, in empty-headedness. They are darkened, and their understanding. Now think about that word, darkened in their understanding, meaning that they can't see clearly. They can't see as being in the light of day, but they see dimly. They have the wrong perspective on life. Why? Verse 18, alienated from the life of God. They don't have the life of God in them. They're not born again. Because of the ignorance that is in them, due to the hardness of their hearts. So their hearts are described as darkened. They're described as ignorant. They're described as hard. The point is that the thought process doesn't result in righteousness. It results in sinfulness. Verse 19, they have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But then it describes this renewed mind, verse 20. But that is not the way you have learned Christ. That is not what you have learned about Jesus Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Assuming that you've been instructed. Assuming that you have been taught. Assuming that you understand the truth. We saw that what was absolutely essential for that caterpillar to become a butterfly is it had to eat. It had to grow to a place of being a hundred times bigger than it originally was. It ate and ate and ate and ate. And the way in which we get a transformed mind is to be feeding upon the word constantly to going and allowing the word of God to indwell our hearts and minds to radically change our thinking, 
radically change our perspective on life, radically change our understanding of what is truth, to be constantly feeding upon the word of God. Now notice Ephesians 4.22, to put off the old self, just like that caterpillar, putting off the old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds. Same word that's in our text, to be renewed by the spirit of your minds, to be restored. To be able to come back and understand God's truth and perceive the reality of life. So what is the result of our minds being restored? Notice, I'm back now to Romans chapter 12, verse 2. That by testing, you may discern what is the will of God. To test, to think critically, analytically, to be able to evaluate every situation. So the translation here is that you may discern what is the will of God. The NAS and King James translates this so that you may prove what is the will of God. I prefer that particular translation in this instance for this reason. It's like to prove or to solve a math problem. And that's really what this word means, to solve. To solve what is the will of God. To know what is the will of God. To be able to understand in any circumstance of life what it is that God would have me to do. What is the proper response? What is the proper attitude? What is the proper position for me to take? How should I respond to whatever situation in life that I find myself in? What is God's will? And then secondly, that we may make a proper assessment of the value of doing God's will. For it states that you may discern what is the will of God. The NIV translates this, then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. That is the most helpful translation, actually. It gives you both sides of, of the coin. For it is saying that the goal is to be able to know what God's will is, and then not only to know what it is, but to learn to appreciate that. Learn to value it. Learn to accept it. Learn to say, there is nothing better for me than the will of God. It provides the impetus for obeying the will of God. For now we have three descriptions of that will. What is good, what is acceptable, and perfect. The idea is that we're to discern not only what God's will is, 
but again, the value of that will. The transformation is great with respect to our perspective on the will of God. Before we are saved, we don't appreciate the will of God. Before we are saved, the unregenerate man does not submit to the will of God and actually opposes God's will. That is the very essence of sinfulness. For the unsaved individual, the will of God is seen to be oppressive or restrictive, that God just wants to sap every bit of fun and joy out of life. So the unbeliever says, who in the world wants to do the will of God? Who wants to live the way God commands us to live? Their concept is the Bible is just filled with do's and don'ts. It is an unpleasant, miserable existence of which we are under the the thumb of this God who just wants us to have this miserable life. But the restored mind has a completely different attitude towards the will of God. The psalmist said, I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. I delight to do the will of God. That's the transformation. That's the, the, the caterpillar to the butterfly. That's the change in mind, that we delight to do the will of God. Why do we delight to do the will of God? Three reasons. And that's the description of the will of God. First, to appreciate that doing the will of God is what is right. Notice in verse 2, it says that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good. And I'm using the word right to describe what is good. Good in the sense of morally right. Good in the sense of beneficial or helpful, as opposed to harmful or hurtful to oneself or others. So God's will is always right. God's will is always appropriate. God's will is always just. We don't have to live in a world of situational ethics in which we, de- we just oppose the situation that we are in with what God's word has to say. For example, the will of God is that we speak the truth. Speaking the truth is always right. Speaking the truth is always appropriate. Speaking the truth is always what is moral. Speaking the truth is always what is most helpful. You see, a non-believer looks at the will of God and says, well, maybe in this instance, it's not what is best. Maybe in this instance, it's not what is most helpful. Maybe in this instance, it really isn't right. And we really should be, in this instance, covering up the truth. The restored mind says, God's will is good. Secondly, 
to appreciate that doing the will of God is the road to pleasing God. Notice in verse 2, it says what is good, and now this word acceptable. Acceptable meaning acceptable in God's sight. Doing the will of God results in awareness that God finds it acceptable. It pleases God. When I do the will of God, when you do the will of God, you please God. God looked at his son after his son was baptized, and he said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. God took pleasure in the fact that his son was baptized. For Jesus said, I must fulfill all righteousness. So when he fulfilled that will of God in being baptized, God was pleased with him. Just as a parent is pleased when their child makes good and appropriate decisions. So doing the will of God brings with it a sense and understanding that God is smiling down upon us and is delighted with our choices, which results in a sense of well-being and self-esteem. It is the exact opposite of guilt and shame. When we choose not to do the will of God, there is this inner conviction that comes upon us, this sense of, of guilt, this nagging in the back of our minds, knowing that what we have done is not right, it's not appropriate, it doesn't please God. It is accompanied by shame. We're embarrassed. We don't want people to find out what it is that we've done. We can't look at ourselves and, and take pride. We can't, pust, uh, we can't puff out our chest. But instead, we have this low sense of self-esteem. We feel bad. The world's answer is to say, you shouldn't feel bad. You've done nothing wrong. And to try to just encourage you in your sinfulness and saying, it's okay, that's what everybody does. It's understandable. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. For that's not how we are made. That's not the conscience that God has given to us. So to do the will of God brings this joy of knowing that it is acceptable, it is pleasing to God, and therefore we can feel good about ourselves in the right sense of that word. We can be happy with the choices that we have made. We don't have to have regret. We don't have to have shame. We don't have to be embarrassed. We don't have to be living a life of hiding. But we can come out in the open and be joyous. It increases our dignity and self-worth. And then lastly, to do the will of God brings fulfillment and satisfaction to life. For notice the third word that's found in verse 2, and that is perfect. 
perfect, that you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. When we're talking about perfect, we're not talking about sinless. But when we're talking about perfect, we're talking about a word that means complete or whole. Such as, we may say of a person that they are a perfect stranger. When we're saying that they're a perfect stranger, we don't mean that they're sinless. But it means that they're a stranger to us in the absolute sense of that word. We don't know anything about them. We don't know their name. (laughs) We don't know their background. They are a complete stranger to us. That's the word that's in our text for perfect. To be complete. To be whole. To have integrity. Thus, the perfect will of God is the will of God that completes us. It fulfills us. Doing the will of God accomplishes the purpose for which God has saved us and that God has created us. When we do the will of God, we fulfill why God made us and why God saved us. Our life is complete. It's whole. To understand that our life has not been wasted. It has not been lived in vain. Many people go through a midlife crisis. It's reached in the mid-40s. It's a process of people beginning to reflect upon their lives. And they look at their job. And they ask themselves the question, have I been wasting my time? Have my pursuits been in vain? Should I think about a new career? For some, as they look at their marriage, they look at their family, and they say, am I content? Am I happy? Am I fulfilled? Has this marriage brought about what I had anticipated and what I had hoped for? And people draw the conclusion and say, no, I'm unhappy, I'm miserable, I'm not fulfilled, I'm not completed, I'm not satisfied with my marriage, I'm not satisfied with my job, I'm not satisfied with my place in life. And people begin to reevaluate how they lived and the choices that they have made. It stems from an awareness that one's course of life has not resulted in what they had hoped it to be was not satisfying, was not fulfilling. In contrast, a feeling that life is wasted or has passed us by or is meaningless, such as Solomon when he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He looked at his life and he said, what is the point of all of this? Doing the will of God saves you from that agony of saying, what was the point? What was the value in all the effort I put forth, all the energy that I exerted? It's to live a life that is free of regret, that isn't constantly saying, if only, if only, 
or I wish I had, or to want to be able to go back and be able to do it all over again and make different choices. You see, for a life that is committed to doing the will of God, such as the Apostle Paul, when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain, when he reached the end of his life, he gives us this incredible statement. He says to Timothy, he's about to die, he says, I have fought a good fight, I have finished the race, I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. As you tear that apart, listen to what he affirms. First, his life struggles have been worthwhile. He said, I have fought a good fight. Meaning that the fight that he chose was the right fight. It wasn't easy to live the life of the Apostle Paul. It was filled with shipwrecks, it was filled with beatings, it was filled with a lot of different torments and anguish, but Paul says it was worth it. My life was worth it because the struggles that came, it was the right fight. It was the right fight. Most lives are not lived in ease. It's filled with struggle. It's filled with heartache. And the life that you're living right now is filled with difficulty. And you're pursuing, you're struggling, you're hanging in there, and you're continuing on. But the question is, is it the right fight? All the effort that you're putting forth, the goals that you have set, and you reach the end of your life and you say, this is what I have given my life for, will have been worth it. Doing the will of God is worth it. It's the right fight. Paul could say he had done all that God had called him to do. He said, I have fought a good fight, I have finished the race. The purpose for which God had made Paul and the purpose for which God had saved Paul, Paul accomplished. For he had done the will of God. When you reach the end of your life, are you going to be able to say with confidence, I've done everything that God had created me for and everything that God had saved me for? I haven't wasted my life. The answer to that will be, have we done the will of God? Day by day, moment by moment, choice by choice, are we doing what God would have us to do? And day by day, moment by moment, as we choose to live righteously and holy, as we, with a new mind, attitude of heart, that delights in doing the will of God, we will have ended up doing all that God wants us to do.
Paul had completed the work. He had remained faithful to the end of his life. He said, I've kept the faith. You don't need to worry about whether or not you're going to go off the deep end if day by day you are doing the will of God. With the result is that he looks forward with confidence and joy to being in God's presence. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give me at that day. Paul is looking forward to be re- being rewarded. He's at the end of his life. And he's saying, I'm looking forward to be in the presence of God. Even the child of God, who hasn't been living for God, doesn't know that joy at the end of their life that says, I really want to be in his presence. There's this nagging understanding in the back of our minds that we've done things that are displeasing. We have done things that are inappropriate. That we have failed him in many ways. This is a passage that calls us to live a life of no regrets No what ifs, no of I wish we had done it all over. I'm not saying I've wasted my life, I have worked hard, I've spent all this time and this energy and has resulted in nothing of value or benefit to myself or others. All that can be avoided by presenting yourself as a living sacrifice to God, by simply saying, God, (laughs) I want to do your will. Because it's good. It's perfect. It completes me. It's satisfying. It's acceptable. It's what's pleasing in your sight. So just don't mindlessly live your life following the example and advice of those around you. Just don't let this world get you caught up as though this world is everything. The scripture says, set your mind on things above. Take time to remember that there's more to this life than food and clothing. There's more to this life than the car that we drive the house that we live in. There is more to this life than what the world thinks of that we are in. This life is the stepping stone to the life to come. Eternality is being in the presence of God. Rejoicing that we have accomplished what God has created us for and what God has saved us for. Give yourself to the scriptures. Feed upon the word of God so that our minds are restored, so that they're renewed, so that they're cleansed from the thinking of this world. 
Allow the word of God to change your attitude towards God's will so that you delight in it, that you hunger for it, that you say there's nothing better for me than to do what God wants me to do. That's the transformed life. That, that's the caterpillar to the butterfly. What I can say, God's will, that's what it's all about. That's what's going to be my focus. That's going to be my joy. That's going to be my fulfillment. That's going to be my satisfaction. I'm going to constantly be asking myself, what is the will of God? What does he want me to do in this particular situation? What choice do I need to make? And God will be well pleased. And we will be well satisfied. And we will say, we have fought the right fight. We've spent our life on that which is worthwhile and fulfilling. Let's pray. Almighty God, help us to delight into doing your will. Help us to have this transformed mind. To be completely changed concerning the will of God. When in times past we resisted, rejected, and were indifferent towards the will of God. Lord, help us to submit to it. Out of a sense of appreciation. Out of a heartfelt recognition that it's what's good. It's what is acceptable, pleasing in your sight. What's perfect, what, what's fulfilling, what is satisfying, what is completing in our lives. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.